0: Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, sponsored by Vermeer, your trusted source in hay and forage equipment. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Philip Wardinger. Philip grew up on a farm in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. If you've played Oregon Trail, that's the final destination for everybody going west. Philip has grown up in and around the grass seed industry and the grass straw industry, so he's going to share some of his thoughts around the production area and around the equipment, some very unique equipment. Welcome, Philip.
1: Hi John. Thanks for having me.
0: Would you tell me about your family operation growing up?
1: My dad and uncle farmed together for, I guess as they described it, as an overgrown FFA project. You know, they started farming their dad, grandpa's pasture when they were in high school. Grew into about at our big, at their biggest, 1,500 acres. And we grew everything from sweet corn and green beans to blackberries and strawberries and all sorts of very good vegetable seeds, grass seeds and garlic, you know, did a little bit of hay. My uncle always, uncle always raised a little bit of beef cows, but we always had to have a few few bales of hay for them.
0: I want to get to the grass seed industry that you work in. That's kind of interesting okay. for our audience here. Can you take me through some of the specialty seed crops that you guys have worked in? I, I should introduce that you're <laughs> from the Willamette Valley, not just south of Portland. There's kind of a maybe 100-mile 100, 100 long valley there.
1: Yeah, I guess you would describe the Long Valley basically the southern end of portland metro area all the way to eugene kind of what we refers to as the Lama valley so it's and it's pretty wide it's not central california valley obviously but we you know, historically a lot of canary crops process crops and as you mentioned grass seed is king here in western oregon it's considered a specialty crop but we call it a commodity year
0: <laughs> so what kind of grass seeds do you grow
1: well, we grow it all, I guess, depends on what part of the valley you're in and preference for amount of work you want to do, you know. I do a lot of custom—nowadays, I, I manage some custom treasure shredders, so I see a little bit of everything. Annual ryegrass or common ryegrass, referred to sometimes as yeah, Italian ryegrass. Then mm-hmm. your different types of tall fescues, your turf types, your forage types, perennial ryegrass. Uh, Forage-type forage perennials, turf-type perennials, like you've seen your yard or your golf courses. Well, some some Tennessee seed-grown, but I think most of that's grown up there near you in Idaho, I think, right?
0: Yeah, northern Idaho and up into Canada.
1: Yeah, but I've seen some around here. Cause I think it's just because of the nature of the beast that we'll get a seed stock field or two once in a while. It just doesn't produce long-term here. Gotcha. A lot of orchard grass growing, too. I fertilize a lot of orchard grass.
0: Maybe you can take us through some of the differences in production between orchard grass, fescue, rye grass, maybe starting with orchard grass.
1: Well, I don't have a huge experience with producing uh, orchard grass. It's something that my dad never grew. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, when most grass seed crops that are grown here in Flint Valley are, are handled the same. Um, the only real difference is is uh, fertilizing timing, your chemical program, and and, your, and when they're harvested. You know, some start harvested in late June, early July, and then you got some some crops that don't get combined until middle of August. just like bent grass; it's combined in August. It's not swathed so late July and combined in August. Just that it's such a late maturing crop compared to your annual ryegrass or your twelve fifth. Sure, sure. I think I believe. Your orchard grass, is kind of in the middle of the road, more towards early July for combining. When we combine it, we have to windrow it like you're going to swath it for hay without conditioners in it and let it sit for about 10 days to dry out enough that you can go and thrash the seed off of it.
0: Let's dive into the equipment here. Tell me about the Modifications to the swathers because I know you guys change them up a little bit for the grass seed industry, and then maybe into the combine side of things, and then we can progress on to seed cleaning too. Tell me about these swathers.
1: Well, it depends on which swathers you're referring to because uh, the one I grew up driving was a Heston 6665 with a 6665 Heston grass seed special.
0: <laughs> what's, uh, what's different about that grass seed special
1: header? So it came from Heston with what we all refer to as stub nose guards. And then it does not have, did not have the conditioning roll attached to it, with the equivalent paper headwood. Uh,
0: the belts that feed to the center, correct? And then just dump it out on the ground well, without conditioning it.
1: Yeah, but the the early slothers, we all had auger headers. The, the uh-huh. paper headers didn't really take off till about fifty, about twenty years ago. Oh, okay. That's really when they they took over the market. They were really finally able to prove, produce, or show the. Yield you gain from using a, a graper style header over an auger style header. And for those guys that aren't grain growers, a draper header, instead of an auger pushing the crop to the center like a combine header, got two two opposing belts that push the crop to the center.
0: Right. A gentler handling yeah. is the thought process yeah. there over the auger that might I act mean, as a little bit of a threshing machine, if you will.
1: Yeah, and then the theory is, is you could, because most guys in the northern half of the Salina Valley, Cloth at night when there's a heavy dew on to limit speed shatter. So, a lot of the fun too is you could start earlier in the day and go longer into the morning with that gentler header. Oh, uh, okay. And, yeah, and then too, I touched the basis there's a lot of vegetable seed crops growing here in Walnut Valley cabbages, radish, Swiss chard, sugar beets, any any and all, almost. We'll, we'll, grow. we'll try and grow them at least once here. Mm-hmm. And so then they, they, they feel like those draper headers are even more gentle on the seed crops as well, the high-value seed crops.
0: On those broadleaf seed crops that are more prone to shatter even even than grass.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you got you to take them to a drier matter stick before you can cut them in order to get good seed germination and stuff.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Um, it's the same thing with seed, right? You got to cut it slightly green, and then you got to let it dry in the windrow so you can combine it, right? Otherwise, if you try and direct cut it, and these guys in Missouri will direct cut tall fescue. will probably argue otherwise, but you let it dry in the windrow, and you have a better... You can thrash more seed out of it, and then if you would, cutting it directly, you run the risk of it falling on the ground before it gets into combine. Got it. If you cut it too green in the windrow, then your seed might... Then you also might run the risk of your seed not maturing enough, and then your germ rates go down.
0: That makes sense. An immature plant has an immature seed. So I was down in Tangent, Oregon, and I saw these disc headers without conditioners, and then there were some other funky changes to them. Can you talk me through those?
1: A little bit. I'm not too familiar with with most rotary saucers. Like I said earlier, we we quit farming before. Those were really huge. They were on the market, but not a lot of guys had them. Um, I believe on the New Holland slash case headers... Uh, they take the crusher rolls out, obviously. Yep. And then they they add some curtain material in there to kind of help as a, a baffle or cushion so that you don't double cut your grass too much mm-hmm. when you're swathing.
0: That's what that extra curtain is.
1: Yeah. And then you'll notice, too, on a lot of them up front, they'll put a big piece of UHMW or a piece of that would be belting as a knockdown bar kind of thing. Yeah. That keeps the grass seed heads from. Whipping back and, and and shattering the top of the header.
0: Uh, okay, so it's a, an even more exaggerated knockdown bar to make sure that that grass seed stays away from the discs. Yeah, the
1: turtles. You don't have to say the controllers, If, if cuz tall tissue, you know, can get pretty rank and tall, and those disc headers, you know, they're only when they're cutting they're only what a foot and a half off the ground off of them. Uh huh. and so when you're going twelve miles an hour through the field. You you whip you get that that grassy whiplash.
0: Oh, you're talking about the head flapping back over top of the
1: on on the top side of the header. On it's the top of the header, on top. Okay. Yeah.
0: I understand. Okay, that makes I got it. That makes sense to me. I hadn't put that all together <laughs> yeah. in my head, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah, I and mean, a lot of these guys that are listening to this aren't going to, under, aren't going to have a hard time visualizing those big...
0: Yeah, so it's just an extra...
1: Two eight-foot sheets of plywood, almost, or UHMW.
0: Yeah, the one that I saw was basically the same belting, the same uh, heavy rubber plastic material that you would have on the front curtain of a disc mower normally, but then there was another layer mounted up higher that draped down over the head to do just exactly what you just described to keep the heads of the plants from whipping over the top and slapping on the top. Of the header.
1: And then it also helps, like you were saying earlier too, it helps keep, push those feet heads in the right orientation so when you do cut it out, so, I mean, it's you know, kind of a bonus there.
0: Yep. Now, do those but, rows but, get raked or are they just sit out for a week and dry?
1: You just let them sit and dry. If you go and rake them again, you you out. Yep. Yeah, so with the rotary swathers, I believe they're right around, all of them are right around 15 feet. Sluster. Huh. <laughs> Most of your Draper, your Macdon Drapers, or your Deer Drapers are about 15 feet, I believe. And anybody that's still running an auger header because there's still a lot of those running around to their price point, right? Right. No, so they're they're usually right around 15 feet as well. Oh, okay. So, but there are a few guys that have been bringing in some 20 foot Draper headers, Macdon Drapers with double t- double sickle because they've been uh, the Claws Combine has been taking more and more of the market share locally Mm -hmm. and they just go too dang fast so they want a bigger windrow so they can sew the combines down so that they can walk behind them and help set them better
0: ah okay you just said something a little strange about operating combines here you just said that when they're running the combines somebody's walking behind checking the
1: checking your tailings
0: yeah checking the tailings how fast are these combines going
1: so it kind of it all kind of depends on on the size of the combine the style of thrashing mechanism you know your rotary to your cylinder walkers. I believe some of these state claws combines are going anywhere from six to eight miles an hour thrashing grass huh. and those grain guys they they think that's no big deal but normally you know in the John Deere 9610 combine would probably do about two and a half miles an hour mm-hmm. in, in a 16 foot header row. Right. Maybe a little bit slower, depending on how heavy the crop was. Right. You're, we're, we're doubling and tripling our capacity with combines, but not our swat, not our swathing mechanisms.
0: Okay. I see what's driving that adoption of a bigger header.
1: Some guys don't mind doing the, going faster like that. And then you've got some guys that are just real, just grassy. you got a lot of fine tuning, you know, real small crop feed, and there's a lot of fine-tune adjustments you need to make to your sieves, your fan feeds, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. You can't just stop the combine and get out and look. You got to kind of see what it's doing as, you're, as it's thrashing. Sure. Come as you say, it, get on the get on the gator and go. Follow the line of the gator. Reach out with your shovel.
0: <laughs> That's uh, probably a considerable more attention to the little details than most combine operators that are working in corn and soybeans and wheat.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I you know, growing up, I did thrash a little bit of wheat. We didn't grow a lot of grains just because our soil it was better suited for growing higher value crops. Right. At least for our in our region as far as higher value.
0: Yeah, I mean you guys are only growing like hundred and twenty bushel wheat, no big deal.
1: Yeah, without turning water on. <laughs> yeah, no no re irrigation. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you know, you are just combating wheat or corn. You just kinda of look in the in the grain tank and see, oh, you got some white caps and you turn your, your cylinder speed up or you 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 stop you know you stop at the corner and you crack your shivs open a little bit or whatever you might have to do you don't really want to you don't know, just kind of go because it'll all go either way No mm-hmm. trash in the combine no big deal but when you start you mentioned cleaners um, you combine grass seed then you got to haul that grass seed to your clean to your you know your cleaner that you may own yourself or to whoever you're paying to clean the seeds for you right. And you're pay, and you gotta you gotta pay for usually on clean out, guys will charge you on clean weight, some guys will charge you on a clean out weight, just kinda of depends on the cleaner's preference. So you if you got real real dirty fields and you gotta have a clean it's harder or couple time or two extra, it's more money out of your out of your bottom line. So mm-hmm. the better setting you can do your combining, the less money you spend cleaning it.
0: Doing it right the first um, time is the theme there.
1: Yeah, but then you get a lot of guys that do their own cleaning, and they might not try and get all the small pieces of chaff or straw out because they know it'll it'll blow out of the, you know, the first two screens of the cleaner or something. Right. Really easy, but they're doing it themselves, so they they got more control over the cleaner. But then you got guys that just just aren't good farmers sometimes, or just don't. That's just not what they want to spend the money on. Right. So they'll put their efforts into another crop or another process or something.
0: There's a couple more unique things about these combines. Do some of them have modified grain tanks?
1: Yeah, it depends on what industry you're or what what their growers are going for. Okay. You're probably referring to the to the flower seed grower that we, we all talk about and joke about.
0: <laughs> Literally like garden flower flower seed growers, right?
1: Yes. Like you yes, your guy that you would go down to your local farm store or garden center and buy packets of flower seeds or or buy your angle starts, at the, you know, plant them in your garden. I, you know, we grow a lot of vegetable seeds, but there's also a lot of flower seeds growing here in the Silverton community that I live in, more mm-hmm. so than anywhere. Right. One of the big outfits, Triangle Farms, I forget what the name of the seed company is. They've got three John Deere sixty six twenty twos. So those are at a hillside combine. Yeah. in The factory from John Deere. That he cut the grain tank off and built platforms on either side of the combine to put two metal top pins, the T pins, and auger right into those instead of into a grain hopper.
0: So what you're telling me is they're not handling thousands of bushels a day. That's fairly no, small, but small volume, high dollar value production.
1: Well, I wouldn't even necessarily say small volume, small lot, like uh,
0: okay. quarter
1: acre. Half quarter acre, half acre. He might have a big lot of ten acres or something, right? Of a specific type of flower or something that year, right? But you you could go out to a sixty acre field, and he could have eighty different flowers in that sixty acre field. Gotcha. It's kind of depends, and then you have a similar thing with vegetable seed crops too, right? The customer demand, ebbs and flows of the market, right? COVID yeah. really hammered the, really hammered the. Vegetable seed market. Mhm. You know, and so we might get get a 20-acre field one year and, you know, do double what they wanted, and next year, well, you gave us too much seed, so we're not planting that variety anymore. Here's six acres of this variety. You get half the yield they wanted because of that variety.
0: Right, Very interesting modifications to the equipment there.
1: Combine modifications, you know, guys that grow radish seed, hybrid red radish, or, or an OP light daikon radish that's used a lot of forage. Yeah. They got, they got a seed pod and you gotta crack the pod in order to get the seed out. Okay. A lot of guys that do a lot of acres have modified generally uh, international combines, modified the cylinders to get the pod to crack open better, but the still tried and true method is to put two basically crusher rolls either mounted um, on the pickup header we're right in front of the feeder house. of The combine, you know, as that crop flow goes through those rolls, it cracks. Tension set just enough to crack those pods.
0: So what you're telling and me you can, is they took the conditioners out of the swathers and put them in the combines.
1: Yeah, but they cut. Then they cut the ribs off. They made them smooth, though. So.
0: Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> that's a good visual. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: just for that's just for radish, though. So. Gotcha. The original. Rotary grass seed special was an overhauled John Deere Moco. A local staff shop and farmer modified the John Deere header to use it in grass seed. But they didn't just take the rollers off the back. They actually mounted three or four vertical short drones. Yeah, and that and they're hydraulically powered, high speed hydraulic motors. And they create a wind baffle in there to help direct the crop. To the center without actually hitting any of the header header frame.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: Because the issue with those with those rotary headers is there's nothing pulling that crop to the center of the co- of the header without an auger. Right. So there's a whole plant of the whole plan of guys wanting to use the rotary headers and the grass seed to get away from the augers and the real back that beat up the seed crop.
0: Yep, that makes sense.
1: Anyway, a local farmer and fab shop down in Tangent, Oregon developed the original headers. And then the local John Deere dealer, which was Fisher Implement at the time, bought the rights or however they do that. Yeah. They basically got it so if you wanted it, you had to buy it from them. Well, they have since been bought up by Pape Machinery. Now, if you want a John Deere R450 swather to cut grass seed, you have to buy a swather, and then you have to pay to modify the header. We have to be really invested in rotary swathers at that point.
0: <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> that is quite the investment.
1: But just so to give some guys perspective, it's, you know, the hay guys, you you, know, you go 12, 14, 16 miles an hour cutting, cutting hay, and it's the same with those rotary grass seed swathers. But with a traditional auger or draper header swather, the grass seed, your maximum you're doing six miles an hour. Right, right. Some of these grass seed guys that are growing five thousand acres of tip of grass seed are able to cut a lot of grass seed with half the amount of swathers or or you know, quarter of the amount of swathers.
0: Wow. That's there's two numbers there that you just <laughs> that you just put out there. Uh, five thousand acres of seed sounds like a tremendous amount to me for a for a it normal is, operation. It's
1: not even and that's not even the biggest ones out there.
0: Right. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Let's tie the s- grass seed industry into <laughs> the grass straw industry and the export industry. There you go. So let's, uh, let's put a bow tie on this and bring it all together.
1: That's actually how I got on the Hay King.
0: Oh, yeah? Oh, well, ta- I want to hear yeah, that story. Take me through it.
1: Well, this job that I'm currently at, I'm technically the manager of two fertilizer spreaders. We do custom spreading. When I got hired on, we only owned one. And it was previously operated by one of the owners of the company. And for them to justify hiring a full-time help, they decided that there was enough grassy straw growing between the owners of the company to justify owning their own big baler and tractor, or actually say, baling crew, to bale their own their grass straw and, re- and make a little money on it to keep, keep with me, the full-time help, busy, in our, what we would consider our slow season. So uh-huh. I'm through the grass seed harvest that year and get through the fall spreading season and I'm sitting at home and in the hotel room and stumble upon Hate King's page <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> well, well shoot. I don't make hay, but I make straw bales.
0: Right. Yeah, I'd say... My joy. I'd say what you're doing there is a unique mashup of everything from start to finish in the hay industry. (laughs) Whether you're putting the fertilizer on the fields for the seed crops that everybody else plants and makes hay out of, or on the backside, you're baling grass straw, which is uh, a unique concept, I think, to many.
1: Yeah, I don't... Actually, I kind of miss it, but we don't do any straw baling anymore.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The the margin just wasn't fair enough to justify the payments on the equipment. Right. We we were making money just... Being custom spreaders, custom applicators, we can make more money concentrating on growing that business than trying to build straw.
0: Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. I'm Danny Wan and and I switched to the Vermeer 604R
1: because I believe this baler is built to last. I bail about 4,000 bales a year, and I think as much money you give for a baler, if they need to bail 4,000 bales a year, even if it's for 10 years, they they need to get it done. The day I ran it, we absolutely had no issues at all. It fired up, and I bailed like some guy. (laughs) It just bailed all day long. Hear the
0: full story at makinay.com slash haykings. So once you bail grass straw, what's the market for that?
1: Export. Almost all of it goes export. Just like you guys, your Timothy and your alfalfa is out of California and stuff. It it all goes to to the Pacific, mostly the Pacific Rim. Some, you know, can go elsewhere, but it's just used as a filler, you know, in in feed rations. Yeah. Just uh... China, Japan, and Korea are probably... of the bigger ones i do i think a lot of some goes to china too you know i don't know the numbers on that you you might have a better idea
0: so japan south korea uh taiwan china those are all big markets for grass uh yeah for everybody knows this
1: is what john does for a living (laughs) (laughs) yeah tracks the market
0: (laughs) oh yep in the hierarchy of things it truly is just a filler product where maybe yeah, no. Maybe you can kind was, of argue there's some nutritional value to Timothy. There's not a lot of arguing about nutritional it, value in, in grass straw.
1: And a lot of that has to do with, with the types and varieties, right? Your, right. your tall fescues, your, your forage type tall fescues, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of growth, your green growth, that doesn't get you know, over mature even though it's on the feet.
2: Uh huh.
1: So there's quite a bit more feed value in your, in your fescue straw than your perennial ryegrass straw, or even your annual ryegrass straw. Because once it gets mature to seed, then it just, it spends all its energy in producing seed, and it takes it all out of that plant growth, you know, and then to cut it, you know, that plant storm, it goes, goes to a dormant stage. Mm-hmm. Whereas your fescue, your turf, your, sorry, your forest-type fescues tend to keep having a certain amount of growth, because they're bred for yeah, uh-huh, Sure. You know, and then your orchard grass straw, and I think even from your timothy straw, yeah, it's going to have a little more feed value just because they put it again. There, those are forage type crops, and so just from the nature of their breeding programs over the years, they just they're, they got better nutritional value.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, your perennial, your perennial ryegrass straw, at least traditionally here in the valley, Lima Valley, mostly turf type. You know, for your lawn and your golf courses. Mm-hmm. The stuff coming out of, like, New Zealand, now that's all to mostly for your forage crops because they grade so much mm-hmm. down there. You know, their sheep and their cattle, they're just crazy year-round. So their breeding programs are geared more towards that, where ours are geared towards your, your retail market for your
0: feed. Lawns, lawns and uh, golf well, courses.
1: I do a lot of spreading in Central Oregon. The Madras, Culver, Prineville, mm-hmm. close to Bend, and they grow a lot of bluegrass. Mm-hmm. That's one of their bigger crops just over there. It's basically a similar market as here. The only difference is that the grass straw doesn't get doesn't get exported. It's got better feed value. it better feed value, but it's uh, it doesn't press well. It doesn't make a. Uh, it doesn't can't get a lot of weight on the container.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's there's the volumes out there, right? They're, they grow. We say they grow a lot there. but they're still, it's not huge volumes like there is of these other varieties growing here on the left side. So it's hard to create a market for something that's already limited.
0: Right. I get bluegrass that comes in as a kind of a weed in my Timothy stands. I like to thank the Canadian geese for that.
1: Is it bluegrass or is it an annual bluegrass? You know, there's a few different types of annual bluegrass.
0: We have bluegrass seed production just south of us. And I think oh, okay. we get some of that that comes up this way. And And literally, I think it's the wildlife that bring it up. Uh, when I get yes, and it's true usually. bluegrass it's not it's not the POA annual bulbous bluegrass or anything like that
1: probably our biggest weed issue here in the in grass introduction is, is POANA or, or annual POA right or bluegrass single bluegrass POA we call it yep. And and uh, previous podcast talking about penne- your, weeds and your stuff that kills it kills your regular grass for the most yeah. part yeah and then we've been spraying it for a long time when we're still weed. the the Growers have been spraying it for a long time, trying to control it and creating
0: resistance.
1: Um, resistance, and that's same with annual ryegrass. You know, annual ryegrass by its name is an annual crop, yeah. Or you got to spray out the re sprout if you want to plant a new crop or a different crop, right? And it's getting a lot of there's a lot of resistant annual out there. In fact, my dad's not ready to spray his yard out, so we can't get it under control in his yard. Oh, no, yeah. Well, we think it was already there when he moved in.
0: I was going to say about the bluegrass and the timothy, it doesn't produce a lot of volume of hay. <laughs> it it really turns no. into a problem when you have, uh, we had a particularly good dryland timothy year this year where we were consistently three to four ten to the acre, uh, and then you get to a field that has a bad infestation of that bluegrass and it's a ten and a quarter to the acre, and it just kind of breaks your heart to <laughs> see, what if I would have done a better job managing this? It, it would have made hundreds of dollars an acre difference.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's tough too because bluegrass wants to grow low to the ground and yep. kind of creates a mat. Yep. You know, it's not as bad as bent grass where bent grass is a rhizome type grower. Yep. So it grows off its chillers and stuff, so it really it locks in. But bluegrass can it mimics those, those tendencies real quick.
0: We have quackgrass too, so I know about grasses that grow from rhizomes.
1: I think everybody's got clack grass.
0: <laughs> oh, it is possible to kill it, but it's not easy.
1: No, it's not. I I worked for a vegetable seed company for six years, and we spent did a, we spent eight hours on our hands and knees with with garden shovels digging up those little root balls.
0: Oh my gosh! Out of a
1: out of an onion seed stock field.
0: Oh, that sounds horrible.
1: <laughs> it was the wrong boss was in charge that day. <laughs> Instead, I just try to spot spray with some, some toxic chemicals and just blowed it away and dig it. wasn't my call to make those dates. <laughs> anyway, back to your press market,
0: the uh, the export market.
1: Kind of funny what I've been noticing now that I've been involved in, down in the annual ryegrass country more. If the annual ryegrass gets rained on, then all of a sudden perennial ryegrass straw starts to, to be worth money.
0: <laughs> oh, because
1: there's just such a volume of annual ryegrass that yeah. that they can, and it's early. It comes off in late June, early July. So it's the first in market and it's got a lot of volume so they can move it real fast real quick.
2: Right.
1: We do tend once in a while get a fourth of July rain that really if, it, if that end ryegrass straw gets rained on, it turns yellow. Right. It's ugly yellow, kinda of like wheat straw does.
2: Right.
1: And so they don't nobody wants it. Where you're tall fescue and your ryegrass straw, if it gets rained on, well it's not a huge amount doesn't necessarily turn ugly colors right away. Mm-hmm. So you can get away with, with it a little better.
0: The terms that I keep hearing around the quality of grass seed straw is words like shiny and bright. Maybe something that you might think about uh, maybe folks that have done oat straw or wheat straw. You might understand the distinction between something that's kind of a clean and a bright and a
1: shiny, right? Yeah. yeah. Cause like your wheat straw, you know, fresh Nice fresh out of the online wheat straw. It's got a real white color to it, right? Mm-hmm. But the moment wheat straw gets wet, it turns real bright, bright yellow. And right. like, if you use it as bedding, you realize that you will see that, and that's the same. And it's just like this that changes colors, and so the, the customer or end user, wherever they might be in Japan, sees a bunch of bright yellow straw. They're like, well, "It's already been wet, right? Like, right. is there a bunch of mold in there now? Right? What, what's wrong with it?"
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Those little changes affect a lot of perception and have have yeah. just those implications that you're talking about. If it isn't, if it doesn't look it's, just right, maybe it got rained on, and maybe there's water issues.
1: If you know, I took a, for, a forage crops class in, in high school, in college. I mean, community college. Yeah, so we were still farming and growing, growing a lot of organic pilots at the time. Yeah, and it was always said, "Grown in my head for years." Even as a kid was. If your hay or your silage makes seed head, you're late. Right. But you you go to the farm farm store and you go to buy a bailout orchard grass or timothy, depending on what part of the country you're in. If they can't see a seed head in it, they don't think it's it's any good.
0: Yeah, that's that's something that we run into in the timothy world. You don't, they want to see yeah, that big old they, seed head. That's that's no. a critical component. If it doesn't have a seed head, it's not real <laughs> timothy.
1: Yeah, which. Timothy doesn't have a huge, a high seed value to begin with, you know. Right. And they start throwing mature, the the turf crops in there. It's like, well, what is it doing? Here? Yeah. Yeah, it's just like I said. It's all about marketing. <laughs> right. A perception.
0: And those little, those little changes that make all the difference in that perception, could be the difference between selling your crop and not.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like packaging your bales. Some yes. guys like. Uh, like a hundred pound orchard grass bale, some people would uh, would would grab the fifty pound, who knows what kind of grass it is from the local guy down the street next door because it's fifty pounds.
0: Because I'm from the West Coast, I, a a hundred pound hay bale is not offensive <laughs> to me. I I get the feeling that if you go like east of the Rockies, that perception changes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have to say that because I, I I get a kick out of out of reading through some of the. Both from thinking uh-huh. about being able to sell hay here and there, like everybody's market's different. Yep, everybody's needs are different. Yep. I and mean, there's, like I said, I do a lot of custom spreading in Central Oregon, where I do a lot of a lot of hay growing as well. The vast majority of the hay is put up in either in two Thai bales that are what, what sixteen.
0: Yeah, sixteen what by eighteen. Yep.
1: Th- yeah, and they're forty-six inches or forty-eight inches long. Yep. So you're you're averaging ninety to hundred pound bales and thing on kind of grass for off out there growing
0: Yep.
1: or, or big bales. I mean, there's some three-tie bales there most of that is driven getting sold to to an exporter to a press
0: yeah ex- yeah that three-tie california is a little funky and that most everything is a three-tie bale and that's just
1: yeah but it's even it's even funkier than what you're doing right so you got the big change of three-tie
0: correct yeah so they have uh the
1: chamber, well, we refer to it as chambered.
0: A chambered bale, yeah. It's a smaller dimension, where maybe it's only 14 or 15 inches tall and 21 inches or 22 inches wide instead of 23.
1: Yeah, and it basically it's to cr- bridge that that two tie retail market and that uh, that mechanical uh, handling press market.
0: Yeah. So the thought the so, thought drive. process, of course, is you want. That three-tie bale to be twice as long as it is wide. So if you have a 20, yep. 21 inch wide bale, you make your bales 42 inches long, so they stack really nice. And then if it's chambered down to 14 inches, I think if we do the math, there's fewer cubic inches in that chambered three-tie bale than there is in that 16 yeah, so by 18 by 46 inch two two
1: string. Yeah, so yeah, the average—I think—they're right around 100 pounds, 95 to 100 pounds. I think in another podcast, they mentioned Arizona bale, you know, 95.
0: Yeah, trying to pound, hit that perfect 95-pound retail bale.
1: Right, and and the difference up here in Central Oregon is they're dealing with two-five, the larger two-five bale,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which you can you can stack with a harrow bed. A or stack wagon or, uh, a stack yeah, cruiser. I call them bail wagon I call, call wagons.
0: Yeah. I but, I don't uh, even know what to call them anymore.
1: But you know, they they make an ugly looking stack and they look ugly. But yeah. they stack and they squeeze. Yep. You know, you can squeeze squeeze load semi loads that way. Yep.
0: The uh, yeah, the three type block stack is an awesome package. I just I know there's a lot of folks that disagree, but for mechanical handling that's an awful good way to go. Oh, yeah. and the two tie block stack doesn't like it doesn't stack as consistent. It just doesn't look quite as pretty. It's still good that you can take a squeeze and pick up three ish tons at a oh, time. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean you know, we're Washington and Oregon got that we're legal we're all legal for super you can get overweight for a to mistake that way. Mm-hmm. For hundred and But you know, hundred and five thousand five hundred pounds and so Yep. In Oregon we can put a block behind the truck, cab of the truck, the drum of the truck. Yeah. So you can put nine blocks, nine sleeve blocks on a, on a truck. Washington, I think you guys can only do eight, right?
0: We can only do eight. Yep. We can't put the block yeah. on the frame of the truck.
1: Yeah, because that's considered a triple. Yep. A triple setup. And you guys can only do doubles, whereas Oregon can do doubles and triples.
0: Correct. Yeah, nothing like going through the gorge on 84 with a FedEx truck and that back trailer whipping all around
1: wiggle waggles yeah there's a lot of guys in central oregon that have been going back to as what they refer to there as cowboy bale your shorter 36 inch bale yeah they say they can some, some guys can sell them faster and some guys say they they don't sell as fast but they sell them consistently the same amount every year because customers know they're there right. they are not having to go out and advertise the sale of it or or find a, a larger prior to buy the hay.
0: Yeah, that's that's entirely possible. I'm I'm of a firm yeah. belief that there is no one right way to market anything, but hay in particular.
1: Yeah, I think honestly, it's just what you're willing to handle, how you're willing to handle it. Right? Yeah, those little, little bales would sell great, I'm sure, especially on our west side of our state, Washington, and Oregon.
2: Yep, higher population a hobby,
1: areas. Hobby, a lot of hobby farmers and a lot of horse people that. The average woman is not that large, not that muscular, lifting 95 pound or 100. And what what are your big tails at?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, on the alfalfa, it is possible to have a 125 pound average.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't. And that want to was dry,
0: true dry hay. But on the grass side, it's more, in that three tie, it's more around that 100 pound mark.
1: Yeah, well, that's what you want to aim for. But so you yeah. go to the farm see the funny part is you go to these farms you go a lot of the farm stores, even the ones in, in in hay country, and they'll sell those those two tie bales fast enough to sell the three tie bale that weighs a ten amount of weight.
0: Yeah, there is certainly perceptions around uh, just just the physical width of the bale and the number of strings. I could imagine a scenario where you have a, a three tie that weighs less than a two tie, like we talked about with that volume difference. And the two yep. tie is still gonna win out in a retail
1: setting. But you know, we you know, and that's funny we talk about uh, straw market, grass straw market. I remember as a kid, my dad uncle owned a Freeman three thirty, the three tie freeman.
0: Yeah.
1: And they would bail all our grass straw with it behind a combine, line, face under the stack it, and light it on fire.
0: So burning the grass straw is one way uh, it depends on variety of Crop that you're growing a little bit, right? Whether you want to burn it or not.
1: Well, back in the day, you know, early 90s, late 80s, there was no straw market, period. And so you had to get the straw off in order to keep your field healthy. Right. Uh, Also, also, you used to be able to field burn everything.
0: My understanding, there was some opposition to smoke along the way that kind of put a kibosh (laughs) on that.
1: Well, there was, you know, there was always, there was, you know, even back then, there was a growing concern for, environmental impacts that smoke in the air. Right. But what actually set what actually put an end to it was down just south of Tangent, I believe close to Eugene, around Harrisburg, if anybody's familiar with Leno Valley, a farmer called the fire department, got the okay, the winds were blowing the right direction, everything was good, lit his fuel on fire, and all of a sudden, halfway through burning the fields the wind shifted and blew directly over I five, interstate five, and caused a major, major Wreck. A lot of people died and that put an end to open, we all refer to it as open field burning, Right. whereas you take your drip torch and you drive around the edge of your field and light it on fire. So the few people often what we refer to the northern Atlanta Valley, which is basically north of Salem, most of everybody up here outside of the hills country were using field burners, propane burners. So mm-hmm. take this great thing. Build straw, burn the straw stack, and then you go through and you flame the field. It's a more managed burning process. They basically lumped all that in because it's, it wasn't crucial to the production of the crop, you know. And so, when you would call your local fire department and get the okay to go burn for you know, two three hour window, you had to burn. A lot of times, like, well, you're not a not it's not an essential process, so no burning today. Right. Uh. You're basically, you're at the and of your local fire mar- fire chief or fire marshal.
2: Sure. They so look sure.
1: favorably on your on, on things, and you were usually okay. But if they didn't like it or got a lot of complaints from, from people within the community, then they would basically put a stop to it. So, that's... so the only field burning of grass that is left in the western Oregon is a fine fescue in a real specific small area, growing area in the foothills of Cascade Mountain.
0: And they have decided that that's a critical element to production.
1: Yeah, I don't know the details on it. It's for, as I said, fine festu. Yeah, and I've never been involved in growing it. I've been involved with it fertilizing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't, but I do believe that by burning it pr- promotes growth and, and healthy, healthy plants because you get a longer, longer stand out of it. Better yield. Not to mention, not to mention, burning it helps control weeds and bugs and other like that without there's many chemicals
0: right right let's talk about some of the fun equipment that you guys have that nobody else as far as i know have <laughs> like to, tell me about these sprayers and the the different configurations and the tire sizes and the tire types because you guys are in a wet wet place
1: yeah i mean that's just like we were happened earlier i run two fertilizer spreaders they're they're custom built they're built locally Mm-hmm. One was built by a full-time grassy farmer out of Corvallis, Oregon. He uh, kind of developed and built his own buggy, I don't know how many years ago. His brother saw it and he used it a few times, decided he wanted one just like it, had him built, so he built one of those, snowballed.
0: What you're calling a buggy here. Describe a buggy to me.
1: So what, I, what we refer to here in London Valley as our spreader buggy, kind of a generic term for spreaders, but... At, generally they're a three wheeled machine. Okay. So like your big Terragators that are three wheels. Right. But about half, maybe even a third the size of a big machine.
0: And, and again, it's it's the idea that your ground is so wet that even a, a right. big three wheel Terragator would have troubles.
1: Yeah, that's that's the whole issue. It's it's uh I, mean, I started spreading fertilizer on Monday, on I think it was Friday last week, so that would have been February so February fifth I started spreading fertilizer for for the twenty twenty one season. Yeah. Bill. You know, and today we got probably uh three quarters of an inch of rain today, started raining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only reason I'm not spreading fertilizer tomorrow is we're calling for freezing weather. Can't drive on the grass with a stroke. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. But,
1: okay. So my buggy, the one that I the one that I drive pretty much every day, just a variation of most of the three wheelers, it weighs empty, it weighs 11,300 pounds empty, mm-hmm. and it's got three tundra tires, as we call them. They're 66 inch diameter tires, they're 60 inches wide.
0: Sorry, say that again.
1: They're, the tire itself is 66 inches in diameter, so around, yeah, and it's 60 inches wide.
0: That's a wide tire.
1: And I run generally this time of year anywhere from six pounds to three pounds of air in each one of them. Right.
0: Low, but, lots of surface area—that's what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, but um, the ones that are real cool and real fun that I've yet to drive, and I don't know if I ever want to, are referred to as a duck. D U K. Okay. Originally made by originally made by Rears Manufacturing. You know the guys that make snow mowers and sprayers. Okay. And they and they run on inner tubes.
2: They Just do not inner run tubes. On
1: actual tires, inner tubes. Right. Special, heavy, thick-walled inner tube. Each, so they got. They're usually these are usually four-wheel machines, and each wheel's got two tubes doled up together.
2: Uh huh.
1: Yeah, and those, <laughs> I think the heaviest, or not the heaviest, most of those weigh around between six and eight thousand pounds.
0: So you're talking less than a 2,500-size pickup truck. Yeah. With four, with, with eight inner tubes for tires.
1: Yes, eight inner tubes for tires. And they are literally, when they're running those, they're they're driving on water. Right. There's some of those <laughs> machines, when they run empty on fertilizer or chemicals, they've got a spray system on them. They run the risk of floating.
0: Oh, jeez. <laughs>
1: And for people that don't understand, in, in the south, when we refer to the south, of Atlanta Valley, it's all south of Albany or Albany south, of Eugene, real heavy clay soils that don't that they're not drained well. Oh, uh-huh. like kind of like yours, it locks in.
0: Oh, I can relate to so that.
1: there is no permutation. And if there's no permutation, really. Yep, unless somebody spends a lot of money in drainage, and even then the drainage doesn't necessarily work. Right, because it'll just it'll just put uh, concrete in around those, the drain tile.
0: Yep. When you look up the NRCS soil survey, and it says zero inches per hour infiltration rate.
1: Uh, I know and so, all about that. <laughs> and, and, and in Oregon, we get a lot of rain, but it's all from October into May early part of May. Yep. And so we need to put fertilizer and chemical on. Fertilizer goes on in, in springtime. Well, we, I refer to it as spring. It's February into April, depending on the type of grass you're throwing. Mm-hmm. But they're spraying all year round. They never stop spraying. You might take a couple of weeks off here and there. But they don't really ever stop spraying. But you've got to have rigs that can go when it's wet. Yeah, a lot they're... of guys have, a lot of the Victor guys have gone, you know, new John Deere's and Case Sprayers or Agco. Mm-hmm. But they're still putting on those 60-inch wide tires on them.
0: Trying to get that same flotation.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would just, you know, and, and not tear your fields up, right? A lot of your Turf type tall fescues are can be in the ground for twenty for over twenty years. You know, I've I put gold bait on fields that are that are over thirty years old.
0: And still producing seed.
1: Still producing seed. They're not producing as much as they could have if they were say ten years old, but enough they're producing enough seed that it doesn't justify them out and replanting it.
0: Wow, I didn't realize I genuinely didn't realize that seed seed fields stayed in that long.
1: Well, it's just certain types, like your forage type crops that are you know, your your grasses that are doveous, uh, bred to have a longevity. You know, sure. I like got perennial ryegrass, you're lucky to get a good third year out of it. Uh, well, okay. a lot of guys have gone with the two year rotation on your perennial ryegrass. Okay. Um, I can't quite tell you as much about orchard grass. I think it's it's a longer life kind of, you know, you're you're talking fifteen years maybe and I'm thinking I'm guessing but I'm not a hundred percent sure. All right. It doesn't take a lot of orchard grass to produce seed. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I want to say thank you. This has been a great conversation. I think people will get a a lot of value out of knowing where the majority of the gorge and grass seed in general is grown. And I I think it's always cool to talk about the equipment modifications that you guys have to have to farm in such a wet place and to farm such unique crops. So thank you. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do it.